Hallå. Hello, hello. Hello. Hi. Hi. This is a story that unfolds in the very beginning of the COVID-19 outbreak. When I was isolated at my parents' house in Norway, away from my friends who live in Sweden. But my friends and I, we did our best to keep in touch while being so far away from each other. And all of this started when I gave my friend Linnea a call. (laughs) Oh, but you're recording in your studio, right? I'm recording. Nice. (laughs) It's rolling. Fortunately for me, Linnea has access to a really good recording studio. But, you know, I didn't call her just because of that. I called her because... But, but, you know, uh, the reason for me calling you, right? Yeah. Is that I want to do this experiment. Whoa. So it's it's kind of obvious, but during this coronavirus outbreak, a lot of the conversations that used to happen in real life are now happening online, right? Yeah. And I'm just curious to see, like, what has changed in our conversations because of this. Mm. What will we see when we look back on this time? Oh, God. Yeah. Because you, you don't meet people right now. Everything is... Like we are speaking right now through our phones or through like FaceTime or Messenger or like iMessage or anything like that. So to actually test this experiment, I've downloaded both of our Facebook Messenger data. <laughs> I like it. This is so interesting. Yeah, this is so. This kind of creepy. Like, I, <laughs> do we want to know? <laughs> I got hold of both my own and Linnea's Messenger data and uploaded that to this website that gives you statistics about your messaging behavior. And the results were kind of... Oh, sh- yeah. Oh, this is pretty cool. It's like... What? Can you explain? Like, this data doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? Yeah. There's just so much data. What I got was just a mass of diagrams and percentages, which was just completely overwhelming. From how many messages you've ever sent, to which people, to the length of the messages you sent. But I wanted to find the differences from before the pandemic and compare that to now. And I found something interesting in Linnea's messaging behavior. If you if you look into it, so I, I found some conclusions. Yeah. So sometime before the virus crisis, oh. you sent like 35 photos in half a year. You sent... 35 photos. Mm-hmm. You sent three videos. and Yeah. But then look at this graph. Oh, here, here comes the bomb. What is happening? Oh my God. Yeah, there's a lot more. Yeah, there's like a month. It's like tripled. Yeah, it's crazy. I need pictures. I need a um, face. <laughs> <laughs> I need a face. A picture says more than a thousand words, you know, Anna. That's true. Mm-hmm. And when I look at data from across the world that's been affected by the pandemic, it's really clear that people are in fact not just connecting more, but connecting in a different way. For example, according to data Facebook has released, the duration of group calls and messenger in Italy, not how many calls, but how long the conversations last, have increased by 70%, which is huge. Yeah, I think people just need to, I think we all we all need to hang out with people, even if we can't hang out in like real life. It's like very important for us humans to like have connection. And the more I investigated, the more I realized 
that almost all of these platforms were reconnecting. From WhatsApp, Instagram, to Facebook Messenger, Facebook almost has a monopoly on social media. Everything is owned by Facebook. Wow. Just how much does Facebook know about us? What can Facebook tell about us from this increase in data because of social distancing? But I did not expect just how deep this rabbit hole goes. So when I started out with all these questions in my head about data, I found it kind of hard to picture what does this data say and tell about me? I've heard lots of stories about data privacy, facial recognition, machine learning, deep fakes and whatnot. But I've never really heard that much about the content of the data the big tech companies are analyzing. What is in this data? So in order to continue the story, I met someone that could help me elaborate on what is in this data from Facebook Messenger. What can it tell about you? When I first downloaded it, Messenger data, I was actually um, really not sure what to do with it. I just had like this, these huge files of data. Let me introduce Nina. Oh, my phone. Okay. My name is Nina Cecilia Hoyhalp. I am an interaction designer and developer from Copenhagen. And she's been curious to answer this exact question. Like right now, I think actually my Facebook Messenger data is the largest file on my computer. There is it's just so much. So I didn't really uh, have like a clear plan of what to do. How, do you, how did you go about figuring out what this data holds? I just kind of started writing some scripts to get a deeper sense of the data. So just going through like... How many conversations have I actually had? How many messages did I ever send? Which was like 65,000 messages. Um, Who did I talk with the most? Kind of doing these like more like statistical things. And then from that, I kind of started to, to have like some weird bursts of inspiration. Like I wanted to see how many uh, of the messages that I had written where I had like laughed at something because my friend told me that that's something I write a lot. So I, yeah, I wrote a script that went through all the messages I ever sent and checked, like, if I had written, like, haha or lol or something like that. And, like, just how much laughing are we talking about? It was a lot. I think it was, like, 8.5% of every message I've ever written, I wrote haha or lol in it, <laughs> which kind of <laughs> surprised me a bit because, like, honestly, I, it can't be that funny to be on Messenger. Um Like, for context, Nina laughed 8.5% of every message, and I only laugh 0.06% of every message that I've ever written on Facebook. I was kind of thinking that, well, I'm, like, reacting, like, stuff is so funny, so I better figure out, like, who of my friends are then making me laugh the most. Because, obviously, the person uh, that I would write haha to the most would be my funniest friend. 
So I wrote a new script that looped through these messages again and checked like who of my friends made me laugh the most in relative to how many messages that we had, had exchanged. And it, it was really fun to see because it was kind of like some of the people that popped up were kind of unexpected. And some of them obviously were, were writing with my best friends. It would just be like, ha, 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 all the time. But, uh. <laughs> but then Nina decided to do something that I think is just so freaking brilliant. I thought that when are you ever going to have like such a corpus of texts that's uh, very specific to me? So um, this seemed perfect for using in, in making a little like AI of myself. So I tried to train like a machine learning algorithm on this text. Um, so I, yeah, I spent like 12 hours training an AI, giving it all this like text about me and then tried to like make a chatbot where I could, could talk to myself. And it was... Um... <laughs> the chatbot wasn't really successful. I did. I mean, obviously I, I was doing it on my... 2015 MacBook and when you're making a neural network you probably want something a bit more powerful and uh, you also probably want more data than I actually had but but still I, I think I I managed to make this algorithm and it was really interesting in the way that it didn't really make that much sense in what it was saying. The chatbot could barely even make proper sentences. Like it would just like say random words put together and it would mix up English and Danish a lot and it would write like ha 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 like laughing at me a lot um, and it and for me it didn't really feel that ideal at first um, I posted like on Instagram that I had tried to make a chatbot of myself and I failed miserably because it didn't make any sense but then my friend wrote me that honestly is pretty on point in the way that you're speaking um and that was actually really interesting to me because even though that the robot me didn't make a lot of like sense linguistically, it really felt like me in a way. So it wasn't like efficient at communicating and it wasn't a good chat, but, but my identity became kind of embedded in this like neural network. So even though her experiment and the algorithm wasn't really ideal, the experiment actually worked. Making a little AI of myself. Her friends confirmed that the AI really sounded and felt like Nina. And that just boggles my mind. If she can make this on her MacBook with limited processing abilities, imagine what bigger companies could do. But then again... The algorithm can only rely on the data it's provided. So you'd probably still get a chatbot that would constantly laugh at your every reply. And that's just because of the kinds of data that's collected on Facebook Messenger. So the data can only rely on the conversations that Nina are having on that platform. How did you see that reflected in your messages? One thing I did was that I tried to uh, see how many messages that I wrote about beer and beer drinking. And that was like 1.8% of all the messages I ever wrote, which honestly, I feel like maybe is a bit too much and it maybe it shouldn't be like that. But, um, but then I guess it's also just like the nature of the conversations I often have on Facebook will be more 
practical in some ways. So it'll be like, hey, do you want to grab a beer? And then when you meet people in real life, that's maybe where you have like the more defining conversations and the stuff that actually really matters. So in that way, it was representative of my, yeah, of my messaging behavior, but not necessarily representative of my friendships, I think. But Nina told me about something she was really concerned about while she was working with this data that all social media platforms collect. There is just so much. It's, it's ridiculous, the amount of data. And just what are they doing with all this data? I know that they're like always looking at how you move your mouse on the website or if you start writing a message and then you delete it, like 100% they're looking at that. And different social media platforms have different rules and guidelines on what they share outside of their company. But I can't hear you. There's no audio. Yes. Oh, I heard something. Okay, good. (laughs) Yeah, those pesky AirPods, I know. They really don't work with anything, to be honest. The biggest one of them all, Facebook, were actually willing to set up a Zoom call with me. They don't work with, I mean, they don't work with Zoom, um, but everyone at Facebook has one once we started working from home. And then you're like, everyone puts them in, they're like, yeah, we're going to spend 10 minutes navigating why this isn't going to work for you. (laughs) In order to actually know more about what Facebook uses their data for, Luchan Foster. My name is Luchan Foster. Um, I work for Facebook. Is the exact person to ask these tricky questions. And I lead our strategy and planning team within the privacy organization. So... At the moment, there's a lot of data being stored about us from like location data, messenger history. It can feel like a little scary to know that a company has some unclear amount of data gathered from you. But I want to know more about what do I get in turn from this data? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. It it can feel really overwhelming. I think you hit it spot on. It can feel absolutely overwhelming. If you think about You know, the last 10 to 15 years of technology, you weren't running around with a phone to your point of having your location there at all moments. You weren't posting things online of personal moments as well as like moments with friends. Um, And, you know, I can go into a whole list of Facebook steps and and products, but I'm not going to go there. But I think going back to your question, the things that you get are... It's little things like recommendations within your newsfeed of of content that you might be more interested in. Facebook uses your browsing data to basically curate the content for you. It's able to personalize your experience in such a deep way that allows you to kind of get through the riffraff of content that's out there that you may not want to see or you're not interested in and just really focus you because we're all really busy. When you think of the internet and you think of where we've come from 10 to 15 years, it has all been about time savings. We want everything faster and quicker and more relevant for us. Um, And so there's a lot of good that that can come from the data. What data does Facebook collect right now? Yeah, I mean, so the the data that Facebook collects It's all very well detailed in our data policy for the first thing. Really, if you think about it, there there is data that is collected you're off of Facebook activities. It's essentially, you know, when you're browsing the internet on your phone or on your desktop. The other type of activity is, um, to be honest, 
your engagement on the platform, if you think about this is the most relevant and most powerful signal that we have, um, is the data of, you know, what you look at, um, what you click on, you know, what you decide to engage in, the videos that you watch, um, the, the advertisements that you're interested in that maybe you spent a little more time or that you clicked through to look more about. Does Facebook then also monitor and like review what files get stored in long term and those files that get deleted? Um, well, so the good thing is that you actually have access to a lot of that information. We have two products, one which is called Download Your Information, which you can kind of see every all of the data that we have about you. And this was the feature that both I and Nina used to see all of our messenger data that Facebook has collected over the years. You can always choose to delete um, your data. But then I was curious to know, like, just how many bytes of data does Facebook have on their servers? Oh. How many, like, terrible petabytes? I used to know this. Uh, I've been at the company for about seven years. I used to know this at about year three. And then the numbers constant. I was like, I can't comprehend that anymore. <laughs> and sure, it's quite logical. They've saved data from across the Western world for many years. It's not Lucien's Foster's job to know that. But by now, it's an incomprehensible amount to even someone inside the company. It's an incomprehensible amount of data on you and on me. And that's suddenly a lot of trust that we put into Facebook hands to store all of this. Why should we trust Facebook with collecting all of our data? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, I always feel like, you know, trust is has to be earned, right? And so I believe you shouldn't blindly trust anybody. Um, I think one of the reasons why Facebook is earning trust um, and wants to earn trust of people is we have really made a commitment. Um, and I think this really comes down to data privacy. When we design new products and new features, we absolutely design them with privacy in mind. And so I feel like Facebook is going to earn trust by really putting in the foundational work to demonstrate that they can protect people's privacy. Because we know that privacy is incredibly personal. What, what I'm comfortable with, which to be honest, I'm comfortable with sharing a lot. There are many other people that are not comfortable with sharing that much and they want the controls. And that is a personal decision. We have to honor those per personal decisions. Because you do have the ability to delete all of your personal data. But then I asked Luchen, what's the long-term plan for all this data? If you decide to keep all your data, what happens to it in 50 or so years? Yeah, I mean, so one thing that I thought was, was this idea of memorialized accounts. And this, it kind of goes back to this point of, so what happens, what happens to all of this data? I think one of the interesting ways of kind of creating this giant memory is we have this idea of memorialized accounts. And so when someone passes away, um, we're able to turn their account to be memorialized. And what that means is it kind of keeps the account um, in this condition of when that person passed away. And it's a way for their friends and families to kind of still celebrate them 
right? You're remembering them, but it's a really a good way for people to, you don't lose the person, right? You still have all of the memories. Because imagine all of that valuable data that potentially someone in the future will have shared over almost a lifetime on Facebook. Being able to kind of keep their existence and, and going back to your first question of like, you know, I've been on Facebook probably for like 15 years. So you imagine all of that content about me. I've shared everything. And to lose those valuable memories would be terrible. But I mean, there's so much there that like to lose all of that um, would just be kind of devastating. Because Facebook is a platform that brings us together. It's a platform that has brought the world together and a great platform to share and cherish memories. I think it's just a really good way. One, one way I always kind of associate it back is um, when my kids were really young, I got on this kick that I was going to create a, um, a photo scrapbook of them every year. I did it for three years. I did it for three years because after three years, I realized I was like, I don't need to do this. It's all on Facebook or Instagram. If they want to see what their last couple of years have looked like, it's all there. But it's this idea of like, you're selecting these moments in time um, and they're kind of curated in a place and these memorialized accounts, you know, it makes it so that it's not lost after someone passes away. Facebook is a great platform to be able to store those treasured memories. Obviously not. <laughs> Let's start there. Um, but my opinion on this was just completely turned around when I talked to these two guys. Well, making making profit is not inherently a, a bad thing. But I think it's important to, to specify exactly what the sort of danger is with this. This is David. David Watson specifically. And this is Carl. My name is Carl Almam. And they're both doctoral candidates at the University of Oxford. Specifically at the Oxford Internet Institute. And to delve into the problem that they found, we have to elaborate on what it means when we talk about digital remains. So when I say digital remains, what I refer to is basically anything that you leave behind on the internet after you go. Yeah, so anyone who has a friend or loved one who's, who's passed away and had a Facebook page or Twitter account kind of has had some experience of this. There's a lot of, you know, digital traces left behind. But the thing is... The academic work on this to date has been almost exclusively qualitative, which is to say maybe doing in-depth interviews with people who've lost loved ones online. Lots of public debate on, you know, who has the right to inherit, who has the, the, the right to control these data. But all of these debates, they always take a very sort of individualistic focus. So what happens to your data when you die? And, you know, who do you want as a custodian for your digital remains? But as a sociologist, I kind of wanted to look at this more from um, a societal perspective. So not just what happens to, you, to your Facebook profile or, or your particular accounts that you leave behind, but rather what happens to all of our data that we leave behind as a society. And as I started poking around in the research, what I quickly came to realize was that there's there was basically no reliable data on how many profiles are we talking about? How much data is that? Because the platforms themselves have no interest in giving you that information. They generally don't like to talk about the number of dead people on their network. 
Right. So how did you guys go about figuring out how many dead profiles there actually are on Facebook? So basically we got hold of some really high quality data. We we had one data set from the United Nations Populations Department, which does projections of mortalities over the 21st century. So how many people are going to die in what country and what will be their age? So, you know, we have projections of... Let's say how many Puerto Ricans, for example. How many Puerto Ricans, how many 25-year-old Puerto Ricans will die in 2021? And based on that projection, we can match that with age data from Facebook. And because Facebook doesn't give away statistics to the public on their users, Carl and David had to get a little sneaky. You know, anyone can go and set up an ad on Facebook. And what you do is you you select an audience. So you select, for instance, 21-year-olds in Puerto Rico or whatever. And downloading all of that data actually gives us the distribution of age on all Facebook users in every nation. And matching those two data sets together, we can actually project how many dead individuals will there be in each country in each year of the 21st century. And even then, small problem. You need to make certain assumptions about growth. So rather than try and really cook up an accurate model of what their penetration rates will look like, we just said, well, let's set two extreme scenarios. One where absolutely no new users join Facebook, call that the floor, and one where their self-reported 13% growth rate continues in perpetuity until they reach 100% penetration in all markets. They set a, a window within which um, we can be fairly certain the true number lies. It's going to be somewhere sort of in between those upper and lower bounds. So, so wait, you got the statistics from the UN and Facebook and put those two together. Right. And what did you find out? Yeah, I, I want to say within 50 years in our projections, the dead were outnumbering the living. Any way you dice it, you're looking at a whole bunch of dead people online, is basically the, the, the conclusion. It's certainly sooner than that because we're not counting uh, dead profiles that are already online. Facebook is most likely going to have more dead than alive profiles within 50 years. Of course, well, you know, the. This, this is sort of the obvious point, but, but the visuals really drive it home. That curve only goes one direction, right? It's an accumulation. You, you never get fewer. Really, if you extrapolate out further, the living become a, a vanishingly small proportion of the total profiles that are on social media, uh, which is, yeah, a bit of a... Of a scary thought. A digital graveyard, as some have said. Yeah, that's just such a weird and scary thought. But the longer you think about that fact, the more obvious it becomes. Sure, at some point, it has become apparent to social media platforms that they are going to deal with profiles of people who've passed. But, you know, regardless of future growth rates, what are we going to do with all of these data? Sure, you know, Facebook owns your personal history, everything you've clicked and done, but 
when you put all these profiles together, they sort of also own our collective history as a society. And that, I think, has big ethical and political implications that we need to think carefully about as a society. Previously, we've been kind of good at distributing historical data over multiple different actors. So if you think of something like um, Second World War, I mean, the, the, the data about such a significant global historical event is really distributed over hundreds of thousands of actors. So no one quite, quite owns the narrative of what happens. So it's very difficult to in any way distort or manipulate that narrative. The, the control over the historical archive uh, of humanity is a fairly important one, and one that we haven't even really ever debated who should have control to in the modern world. Now, the, the future that we're heading towards where society increasingly take place within digital platforms, we need to think long and hard about the fact that these platforms will then more or less monopolize the narrative about these global historical events. So, you know, stuff like Black Lives Matter or, uh, you know, the Arabic Spring. These are events that essentially took place online. And there's like one or two companies that more or less own the data that tells the narrative about these events. We opened the article with this George Orwell quote from 1984 that says something along the lines of, you know, whoever controls the past controls the present. I think it's, there's, there's some truth to that, right? So imagine all those videos taken by civilians on the street, by Black Lives Matters protesters, of unjust police brutality. If it wasn't for these videos, most people would be oblivious to what has been going on. Because these shaky videos, filmed on smartphones that get seen and shared by millions of people, we get to see the truth. Voices that need to be heard get to be heard by the entire world. But then, in more than 50 years, possibly, if social media platforms, for some reason, whether because it's unprofitable or not beneficial for them, could be removed. It could even be altered in some way or form. And that would be very bad. That would be rewriting history to your benefit kind of bad. So I, I certainly don't want to be some kind of doomsday prophet and being like, you know, history is going to be monopolized and Facebook will own everything. They do have a lot of power. But the thing is, that could actually be used for something really good. Because I think the fact that we're accumulating this vast archive of human behavior it can really be a treasure to future generations. Because if you look back to, to previous historical eras, I mean, we have plenty of information about rich, powerful men, basically. But when it comes to poor people, when it comes to women, when it comes to different marginalized groups in society, we know... Oh, fuck. What's I the problem? I didn't hit record. 
All right. Okay. I'm I'm recording now. Um, fucking hell. All right. Anyway. Um, what was Back I saying? Back to the train yeah, of thought. History. The, yeah. the opportunity to to create a just history. So. You know, if you if you look back in history, recording has always been incredibly expensive. Books, people who could write, all of this is incredibly costly. So the central question of how history was written was, is this worth recording? Is this person significant enough to record? Whereas now in the digital age, almost everything is recorded. Right. It also holds a great opportunity in creating a more just and fair history that we will leave behind or that we will, you know, leave to, to the next generation. Which is great. That's fantastic. Social media could hold the potential to create a just history. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I mean, I, I will say... And Lucien Foster from Facebook made a great point of this too. When I think about it, though... You remember probably being in school and learning about World War II history, and you're reading it from a book. It's, it's not interactive. It's not visual. Um, I am kind of excited, though, for my kids to see history in the tenure, you know, in in the future of being able to see it much more interactive and much more, you know, you were saying this from different perspectives and different views. Um, and I think having that that record of it now, whether it be Facebook or whether it be another app, that's pretty powerful. But then we're met with a problem that's just as big as the last one, because... I don't think we can assume that all of the data of all of the former users of these networks will be made available in perpetuity uh, in an unaltered form if that becomes unprofitable. It, it won't, I assure you. If the data is not profitable, there's just no incentive for a company to actually store that data. Storing it is just dead weight, right? That's just cost after a while. Uh, and there are arguably some incentives for Facebook to keep that data, but those are guesses and speculations. Those aren't protections. It should not be just Facebook's responsibility under no circumstances. An impetuous future Facebook CEO cannot just decide one day to delete all that data. It's, it's a huge loss of sort of cultural heritage, even if it doesn't necessarily feel like that every time you scroll through your newsfeed, um, because that would be, you know, the digital equivalent of burning the Library of Alexandria. But then I go back to that thought. Isn't all of this data that social media platforms store just memes, satire groups, events you probably don't attend, and essentially just trash, right? It's totally different from person to person. But I don't really use Facebook that much. I don't have a Twitter or Snapchat account. And Nina and her chatbot kind of prove that the conversations that people are having on Facebook Messenger are just not particularly valuable. Facebook is just a place where you ask if someone wants to grab a beer with you. You know, your your messenger data can certainly be trashed in the sense that it's mostly like, hey, do you want to go grab a beer? It's really not telling and giving an accurate picture of, of society. 
and therefore its value to future generations is limited. Right. And to this, I reply, well, you know, sure, it might be trash. It might be mostly, you know, funny memes and, and clicks and likes and kind of mundane things. But if you ask an archaeologist of what is the richest sites of, of archaeological insight, often they will reply, well, trash piles and sewers and stuff. Because what a society throws away, what that society considers mundane or insignificant, is often some of the most significant data about that society. And I think uh, future generations are going to look back upon our society and, and largely make the same assessment that, you know, to understand 21st century culture, uh, you shouldn't look at official government documents, but you should look at what are people doing in their daily lives. And even then, the truth is that we live parts of our daily lives on social media. On Facebook, on Instagram, on, on Snapchat. So even if it is true, if it is true that social media data are trash, that does not mean that they're invaluable. But even more importantly, in some ways, what happens in social media is not just a representation of real life. It is the real thing in several instances. I mean, what, what happens on social media, what happens on the internet is very much real society. These are real events that take place within these venues. You know, I, I mentioned uh, the Arabic Spring and Black Lives Matter. Yeah. I mean, take the, the Me Too movement. That is also not just a representation of a real movement. That is the movement. Those tweets are the movement. And that's so right. That's so true. But then I'm kind of split on this matter because, yes, what we leave behind is important data. Important data that shouldn't be misused by any tech company. But isn't this data just valuable for a society in 50 or so years? What data is actually valuable to an individual? Because in all of these instances we've talked about, those are bigger movements that are not really valuable if you look at individual people's data. So Facebook, for example, could use our collective data to tell their preferred version of history. Well, from an individual's data, what would our own history look like then? That's what I wanted to explore with this project. Let's say in 10, 20, 30 years when we have people who've lived with software collecting personal data about them their whole life. We, we know that, that a lot of data that's collected about us, it's maybe the things that you don't think about that's actually the most meaningful uh, to the people who are interested in, in selling your data, which is like the main goal of these services that we use. The way that tech companies collect data today is just for profit. So Jens? Jens Obel, and I'm an interaction designer. Who just happens to be my older brother, was interested in seeing what data is important for you as memories, as your own history. And when I was working on that, um, I researched what personal data is meaningful to you because there's a lot of data that we leave behind in various ways. We are all aware of how we're being tracked, um, but what is actually interesting for you to remember and what is actually interesting 
to you as a person is what I was interested in this project. First, I started exploring a concept where the algorithm did a lot of the work. He made a chatbot that gathered all of your data from various sites. The prototype would then take your date of birth and it would then, based on your date of birth, guess significant events of your life. Growing up, parents, maybe siblings, teenage years, school. Places you've been to uh, based on your location data. But the thing is... The more I researched and the more I talked to people and I tested different prototypes, I learned that mostly just completely meaningless. Facebook does not know which data is meaningful to you. You can only put together that. All the data the tech companies collect is meant for profit. So this data is just useless to you as memories. They try to use this data to tell our stories on social media. But we need to tell that story ourselves. What do you think that's important? Why is it important that we tell our own story with our personal digitized information and data? Because the companies that gather this data, they end up telling a story with it, no matter what. And I think we don't have the diversity and the um, maturity in the technology industry yet to actually tell these stories for the whole world. It's a very optimistic, um, shiny image that they project. So I wanted to give this other way of doing it a chance where you could tell sad stories, where you could tell complicated stories, nuanced stories with it. And maybe we would learn something by seeing how many different people use data to tell their personal stories. And maybe we could show Facebook that there's multiple ways of having meaningful relationships online. So for instance, one thing that I included after a lot of kind of trial and error was September 11, 2001. If you were born so that you would remember that date and the significance of it, it would ask you, what do you remember from this? And that was the most successful one because a lot of people had a lot of memories from this and all they actually needed to start remembering it was this simple question, what do you remember? I didn't even have to ask them, where were you? Because they would start writing it themselves. I were this and this and this place, and I remember it clearly. So like the less specific the questions and the data were, the more successful it was for our brains and the more memories and emotion it sparked. I feel like the most significant memories are the emotional ones, right? Not the ones that are collected by data. Mm. Yeah, but I mean, that's, I mean, a lot of people collect, have like scrapbooks. That's kind of where I started. Could I make a digital scrapbook of your personal digitized information? And I at least feel very strongly about like certain artifacts, like have a receipt for a swimming pool, which I had to go to because I had my first job interview and the only time they had 
the opportunity to talk to me was when they were at the swimming pool with their kids. And that receipt is kind of proof of that this happened. So that receipt is kind of an artifact, personal data. It doesn't have any emotion in it itself, but to me it's very important that this receipt exists. And I have kept that receipt for a reason. If that receipt would be destroyed or I would lose it, I would be very sad because I feel like I've lost a kind of a specific proof. So yes, it's emotions in my head, but I think the proof, the, 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 the actual kind of concrete nature of like the evidence of that data is as important sometimes. And when those artifacts of data are just digital trash, what will our own histories look like then, when they're not collected and treasured personally? When I talked to David Watson from Oxford University, he talked about how we're going to access those artifacts from people who've passed away. Because on the one hand, you're like, well, you know, I, I know Jim. I remember Jim. And that may be true if Jim just died. But 5, 10, 20, 30 years out, if you're trying to remember Jim, your window into Jim will be photos, right? It'll be memories that you maybe shared and posted about. Listen, there may be plenty of other ways you can remember Jim, but now go one, two, three generations out. If people want to remember Jim, what's at their disposal to do that? They had no personal interactions with this human. They will need to look at some archival material, whether that means physical texts, physical photos, or more likely digital contents, and how are they going to access that? I think the obvious answer, at least right now, is that social media is going to be playing a major role in that. So yeah, I think there's, there's serious concerns and risks about putting control of our cultural memory into so few hands. Do you think it's important to remember someone after the death? No. That's what I learned through this project, is that it's important for the people who are left behind to remember the people who are dead. But the people who are gone, or the people who are soon to be gone, maybe it, maybe it, it's most important to be remembered by the people you knew. But a lot of people actually talked about the freedom and the, yeah, the, the freedom that thinking about you would not be remembered. How would, how would that feel? Uh, the freedom that, that gave them, they're not that important. No one is expecting you to be remembered. And you're insignificant in a way that you have the freedom to be forgotten when you're dead. And that's a threat when all our personal data is stored online forever. When Facebook has all of your personal data and you don't have the freedom to be forgotten, that's a problem. I would like the, that feeling of, of being forgotten is kind of liberating. Liberating is a good word. And tech companies storing personal data forever is a real threat to the freedom of being forgotten. But you can be as mad as you want on Facebook. A lot of the stuff they do I find problematic. 
But this problem isn't entirely on them. Imagine if Facebook goes bankrupt tomorrow. What would happen to all of that data? What happens if Facebook goes under tomorrow? Typically, in a bankruptcy, assets are sold off, right? You sell the office and the computers and the desks and whatever. Uh, and that goes to, off to try and pay your creditors. Facebook's assets, overwhelmingly their most valuable asset is user data. Do they get to sell that? Can Facebook just sell my account info to the highest bidder? Are there any... Do, do I get to know who they sold it to? Can the Chinese government buy all of Facebook's server data if they go bankrupt? A lot of the data on those servers, in 50 years, the majority of it, will be this historical data, right? And if you thought things were unaccountable when it's all sitting on a Facebook server in San Francisco, imagine the lack of accountability in an anonymous bidding war between creditors for this bankrupt firm's assets. To burn or not to burn the library of our digital memories has no black and white answer, but it's a problem that needs to be solved soon. The book 1984 by George Orwell, the one that David and Carl referenced with the quote, who controls the past controls the present, ends with its protagonist, tortured and brainwashed by the story's totalitarian government. We're nowhere near having tech companies manipulating the past. But we are headed that way, where that's a possibility. Memories are important. And I don't want my memories to be distorted or broken. It's You have all the memories in your head, but maybe it's hard to find them. And the older you get, maybe it's harder to actually remember certain things. So the physical or, or the as physical like digital data can be, it's really important that we have these concrete connections, these facts, evidence of that things happened. They're emotional, but they're also, they need to be concrete and specific. All right. Uh... These people uh, often come in uh, taxis. Mm -hmm. We meet them at the gate. And the second they come inside, they look around and the scenery is familiar. In my hometown in Lillehammer, there's a museum called Maihagen. And they preserved and recreated buildings all the way back from the 1930s and newer. Old fashioned and it uh, uh, brings back memories also visual. Mm. And then everything come, comes back when you come into the houses with smell and sounds and everything like this. Since 2008, they've been running a project for Alzheimer's patients who visit the museum to try and bring back memories. And Torstein Hannes, who's been with the project, showed me around the houses and the places they try to find memories. All right. Here we come into the backyard. All everything here is originals. So uh, this you knock off your feet, everything. Please enter. Yeah. And then uh, 
So I think maybe the first thing we should do is uh, light the fire. Yeah. And it's a wooden uh, stove. Mm. But uh, we'll uh, we'll open up here. Take some firewood. Put it in there. And then we take some matches. And keep in mind, many of these Alzheimer's patients are severely handicapped. They often don't recognize their families. Some have even lost the ability to speak. The world through their minds are foreign and they have no recollection of the very time that they live in. And for some of the patients with Alzheimer's and dementia, does this evoke any memories for them? Well, you never know what evokes the memories. Um, we try to do as many different things as possible to uh, create many memories, but um, this gives both sound and smell. And of course, like it's this sound as well of the door to the stove and this of the wind uh, regulations. It sounds everywhere. Do you recall any? Oh yeah, well, when we uh, sit here in the living room and we play the play the um, gramophone I have to find them I need to do like this I'm winding up the gramophone now here we go I put this uh, piece back there we go and now let's listen that hadn't been speaking for a long time and uh, she was sitting right here and suddenly she heard the music and her hands lifted from her lap and onto the table and she started to pretend like she was playing the piano. I think in her head she was actually playing the piano and she was her fingers were running up and down the, the table and she was a, a prior uh, teacher for piano players. And that was uh, uh, the first time they have seen any reaction of this from the caring home. And we have been dancing to this music from the gramophone. Mm. And then 
and I, I am the only man in the room often and uh, if an old lady sits uh, here at the chair we have to help them to stand up and then we stand my feet are standing perfectly still but I'm just uh, trying to move like tiny little bit back and forth to the music and they feel that they are dancing in their heads and they say oh not so fast I'm getting dizzy and things like this and uh, they dream back and think they are actually dancing to this and then they think I'm their husband and uh, they start to get jealous about the other people here and it gets really confusing but it's uh, it's uh, uh, things brings back memories for them yeah. If they were to travel back in time into this house at that time, how old were they then? Well, uh, like uh, this... Uh, were they kids? Were they youth? Or? They would be... Uh, uh, we started this in 2008-ish, maybe. Mm. Uh, and when we had uh, people of the age of uh, 90 years old here then, uh, that would be, uh, they would be born in um, 15, so uh, they would be maybe 15 years old uh, from this time, the, the oldest one. Uh, that's the reason why we have moved to another house from 1954, to uh, like this would be memories from their grandparents' house uh, maybe from that uh, time. So um, uh, we tried to find a different environment, uh, so it would be more their own time frame. So um, and there might be more memories for them. Yes, to and to. and today more and more people get uh, dementia at earlier stage, like if in the fifty years old, sixty years old. Uh, this is uh, traditionally a disease that we um, uh, normally would. Uh, assume that they will get when they are 70s, 80, uh, 90 years old. But today, people down to 40 years old get dementia, uh, maybe even earlier. So um, uh, we need to think ahead and try to see if we can use more modern houses yeah. as well to create memories. Do they remember any of this? Um, we, um, we, uh, there's normally a reaction that tells us if they, they, they rise their backs and they get alive in their eyes and they, you sort of, um, uh, you get a feeling when they're, when they're onto what you're trying to, uh, communicate. Yeah. So, uh, but everything, it can, uh, yeah. But it's not like they go back and talk about this. Uh, they uh, uh, some uh, do, some don't. Uh, if they are too tired, they just fall asleep yeah. on their way back. But uh, the caring homes, they find this so useful that they make rooms in the caring homes looking like this, so they don't have to go all the way to the museum. So it's become more and more. Uh, normal to do this in the caring homes. Yeah. Yeah. When I first came here to find out more about the project, 
I didn't really know how the interview would turn out. I knew I wanted to know more about the significance of memories and then the sorrow of not having access to them. But hearing these stories about these people who suffer from Alzheimer's and dementia, I now understand that memories are not just dear to us. They make us who we are. And in losing your memories, you lose a part of yourself. You asked me about a memory? Or like, okay, you tell me the question mm. once more. What's a memory that's really important to you? Yeah, like... And I, yeah, I can, I can tell you this. Um, in 2014, I, I started to become ill in like a mental illness, and I started to like um, neglect my emotions in a way because of a lot of like personal stuff that happened in my life. Uh, and I remember this day, I, I, I was home in my room, and I had been in recovery for a while. I hadn't been listening to music for like what maybe a year. I hadn't been listening to music because uh, it just made me feel stuff and I didn't want to feel stuff. Mm, so I remember this day. I was in my room and I was sitting and looking at my guitar and I felt like I felt that I wanted to play my guitar and I actually I just took it in my lap and I played a few chords of like a song that I've been playing since I was little and I just sat there and played and I began to sing and I remember that my mom came in and we both cried and I think my mom told me that she knew in that moment that I decided that I wanted to to become free from my anorexia and uh, now afterwards i can i can tell that that was the moment when i decided that now now i need to get better like you when you're depressed in that way you don't feel like anything is everything is pointless but when i sat there and played i realized okay this is actually worth something that i feel good about this so yeah that memory is a very like strong memory from my room I mean for myself just traveling back to Lillehammer brings also back a lot of memories when did uh, the feeling of home appear to you when you were closing up to Lillehammer um, I guess well seeing my parents okay when you had to come from... all the way in the door before it happened nah I just had to see like what about the Lake Mjösa? Yeah. What about Hamar, the inland? But it was pitch black. Oh yeah, oh, okay. We came in the evening. Yeah. But I guess like when, when you... Um, I, I can't remember uh, the view as vividly. When I come back, the view is just extraordinary. Yeah. And how much snow there is. And this sound when you're walking. Yeah. Right? This is... This is... Uh, it brings back a lot of memories for me. It's a good sound. This way.
not just important, they make us who we are. And social media is a threat to how we write history, how we remember ourselves, and ultimately, how we will be remembered by future generations. It's up to you to decide if you want to burn the library of digital memories. There's one thing I would like to say for you as a takeaway from this story. Don't sell your memories away to some tech company. Those are your memories to keep, to cherish, and to share privately with those you love. Birth the Living Code is independently created, written, and produced by me, Anna Obu. Thanks for listening.